be seated. Well, we are in Mark chapter 6 is where I left off, and we're going to be getting into chapter 7 today. So in chapter 6, we're studying one miracle after another. We're seeing where Jesus is traveling in Galilee. Crowds are swarming to wherever he's going. People are anticipating where Jesus and his disciples are going to end up, and they get there ahead of them. There is just... uh, so much momentum right now with regard to his popularity and how he's known. But we talked about how when he fed the multitudes, it became apparent to Jesus as to how so many people, though they were all swarming and flocking to him, they were getting the wrong idea as to what his kingship meant and what he came to accomplish. Jesus was frustrated that they were trying to make him out to be a Messiah that he didn't come to be. You know, again, they wanted the Messiah to show up and to get them out from underneath the rule of Rome. They wanted a Messiah to show up and to give them a better lifestyle to fix their immediate problems. They weren't anticipating a Messiah to show up and accomplish what Jesus did, and that is solving our biggest problem, that is our sin problem. But he was frustrated that they didn't get him and they didn't understand fully what he came to do. And we talked about how he even sent them away, frustrated. He sent his disciples away. He sent the crowds away. And he got up on that mountaintop to pray. And the disciples, when they get out on the boat and to go across the Sea of Galilee or Lake Tiberias, they get out there, they get caught in a storm. And Jesus, we see another just incredible miracle. He, he had to walk on the water to, de- to rescue them not only to rescue them physically, but to rescue them from drawing the the wrong conclusion about who he was. And so they are beginning to understand the magnitude of who Jesus is, as we are, as we venture through this amazing gospel. And so today, I want to pick up exactly where we left off to act as an introduction into what we're going to talk about today. The last paragraph in Mark chapter 6, I actually didn't read and teach last week because uh, it's, it's telling us things are getting back to business right? He sent the crowds away. He's frustrated. He has this amazing experience with the disciples, and now they, they cross to the other side of the lake, and they're getting back to business, back to doing ministry, preaching, and doing miracles. So let's pick up at verse 53, and we're going to re- read to the end of chapter 6 just to kind of get our footing on back to where we're at. It says, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore, and they got out of the boat And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And that as many as touched it, and as many as touched it were made well. So, in other words, back to business. They had this little hiccup, this little frustrating moment, and now it's, it's back to traveling, preaching the gospel, doing miracles. Those miracles validate the messenger so that the gospel is validated to the people, and Jesus is getting back to what he's doing, and, and the crowds didn't miss a beat, right? They're right back. Jesus is back. He's healing people. Let's get back to Jesus. Get everybody you know 
that is thick. And there's so much hope in that verse, right? They, they thought, man, even if I could just get close enough to Jesus to just, to just touch the fringe of his garment, I know I'll be healed. So you think how much hope is in that thought. And we've already seen it happen, right? With the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, that's exactly what she did. And she was healed. These moments are circulating amongst people. These testimonies are all over Israel. And so it doesn't matter where Jesus is at, what he's doing, they are swarming to Jesus, just getting to him in any way, shape, or form, because they want to be healed, they want to hear what this message is. He's at the peak of his popularity. But, as we've mentioned, and as we've already seen in Mark, that doesn't mean that everyone is excited to see Jesus. There is a very active opposition. So we've been studying all these miracles, and today we're getting back to some of his teaching and this teaching today in chapter 7 is specifically provoked by his opposition. The scribes and the Pharisees. When you're reading in the Gospels, and any time you hear about the scribes, or most of the time, when you read about the scribes and the Pharisees, you should be cueing the imperial march music in, the, in your mind, right? This is the scribes and the bad guys. The scribes, they were the r religious elite. The scribes, literally, their, their job was to transcribe the Old Testament law so that people who spoke Greek or Aramaic could understand it. And so they transcribed the Torah, those first five books of the Old Testament. It's also called the Pentateuch, five scrolls, what that word means. They would teach people the law, and they would travel all over Israel doing this. And so the, that's what the scribes did, and the Pharisees are there. Now, a way you can think of the scribes and Pharisees, it's likely that these scribes are Pharisees. So just like today in Christian culture, we have several different denominations, right? we got the Baptists, we got the Methodists, we have Catholics, we have all these divisions and things, and, and there's subtle differences between all of these schools of theology and doctrine. Well, the same was the case back in their day, and so the Pharisees were one of these sectors of Judaism. And if you, you had things like the, or people like the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, people like that. So these are, these are likely scribes who also adhered to the Pharisees and, and what they taught and believed. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, again, and the, or, or scribes that were also Pharisees, traveled around Israel... They would stop at these synagogues and, and teach the law. They would stop at your home for a few days, teach the law. And they, they were considered the religious elite of the day. And they were so strict, though, especially the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they loved the law so much and wanted to, to, to stick to every letter of the law so badly that they made laws for the laws. This is, this is something the Pharisees were known for. They would make rules, and it was called the oral tradition. And they would create the oral tradition as more rules to put on top of what God's law says. And here's how they would describe it to people. Why are you doing this? Why do you make more rules for the rules? Why do you do this? They would say, well, we think of our oral tradition as a fence. We want to protect God's law. We want to follow it so badly that we're going to protect it with this fence. This is literally how they would describe it to you if you asked back then. We're going to protect it with this fence that, are, that, that we call the oral tradition. And it's to make sure we don't break that law. So for example, if God's law says don't do this, we're not only going to not do that. We're going to say don't do this, 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 and this to make sure we don't even come close to doing that. 
And so this began to spiral out of control in the day of Jesus and to where it was like, wow, you were so dependent on these scribes and Pharisees to show up to your community and teach you all of this extra oral tradition in addition to God's law, or you didn't have any chance of living up to the law of God or the law of man. So these are the people that are following Jesus around. They're starting to make appearances where Jesus is at. So they're like, hey, wait a second. Why is he so popular? Let's see if he not only lives up to the law of God, but let's see if he follows all of our oral tradition that we've added to it. Let's see how, he, let's see how good of a man this Jesus really is. Let's pick up here in the first five verses. Here's what happens when these two worlds collide uh, in chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples, that is Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Okay. So the big complaint, the scribes and Pharisees, we got it. He's doing something wrong. They didn't wash their hands. They didn't wash their hands. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, yeah, they didn't wash their hands. That's gross. <laughs> right? That's my first inclination. I like to wash my hands before I eat. That's a pretty good thing to do, right? And so our minds, when we see an argument like this, I think we're naturally inclined to, to think about the hygiene aspect of things here. Um, and, and honestly, that is a big deal to me. When people don't wash their hands, I'm like, ew, right? When I'm in a public restroom and I see a guy go from the stall, bypass the sinks, and just go right out the door, I want to be like a Pharisee at that moment. Stone him. He didn't wash his hands. That guy, poop on his hands right there. That's, that's what I'm inclined to do. Like washing your hands is important, right? It's gross when you don't wash your hands. Are you, are you a Neanderthal? Wash your hands. We got sinks everywhere here. But <laughs> what the Pharisees are complaining about has nothing to do with hygiene, okay? So, so don't get distracted by the hygiene aspect of things uh, because that's not the point of their argument. Their point is about being ceremonially clean. So there's, there's something that's happen happening culturally here. Uh, that's, that's a religious thing that's happening here. They did not wash their hands before they ate. They are, they are ritually impure. What kind of religious leader is this? They're not even following our rules. Who do they think they are? So again, don't, don't get distracted you got to remember a couple of things. Let's just think reasonably here for a moment. What have we seen in Mark? Everywhere Jesus and his disciples go, they're swarmed by people. It even mentioned just in a, in, in a chapter or two before we got to this point that when they got back to Capernaum, they sat down to eat and they couldn't even, get, couldn't even fit in a meal because people were coming and going so fast and, and so many people were showing up. They had to just leave. They couldn't even get a meal in because people are everywhere, so they get in the boat and they, they leave to go somewhere else so they could get a little bit of privacy so that they could work in lunch or dinner, right? 
And so you think even, even today, do you wash your hands every single time, right? When you're in a hurry getting from A to B and you just got just enough time to go through the Wendy's drive through and eat it in the car on the way to where you're going. You don't have a sink. You didn't wash your hands. And so before you come down hard on Jesus, uh, Jesus and his disciples not washing their hands before they ate, right, uh, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're in the hustle and bustle right now. They're just trying to squeeze in a meal. They're taking a break from preaching to the crowds and healing people of sickness and disease. Let's just squeeze in a quick bite to eat. We've got to eat to live, right? And so they sit down and the religious elite show up. We got them. I, I, I got you. I got you. You didn't wash your hands. None of you guys are washing your hands. We got you. The Pharisees, it says in verse 3, for the Pharisees, and, and now notice here, this is another reason we think Mark wrote his gospel and targeted Gentiles specifically because he explains Jewish culture to them as he goes along. In verse 3 it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. He's explaining this is, this is a no-no in Jewish culture. You've got to wash your hands before you eat. And when you're doing that, he makes a distinction here, you are holding to the traditions of the elders. He's making a distinction between holding to sacred scripture, holding to the law, the Torah, and holding to the traditions of the elders, these extra rules that have accumulated over time, that oral tradition. So here's how this came to be. This actually wasn't always the case. We didn't always have all of these extra rules in Judaism, but about 100 to 200 years before Jesus began his ministry, some of this school of thought began to surface. Hey, you know what? We need to start building a fence. God's law is so sacred. It's so holy. It's so important that we live in a way that wouldn't break the law of God. Let's start fencing this in and building uh, uh, rules so that no one even comes close to breaking the law. So there was a, there, there's a law in Exodus 30. You can also find it in Exodus 40 where it says that when a priest went to sacrifice, make, a, make an offering, a sacrifice in the tabernacle, he has to wash his hands before he enters the tabernacle to make that sacrifice. Again, that's in two different places in the law in the Old Testament. Now, when we say wash our hands, or when the law says wash our hands, this is a, a ceremonial act. So when you and I wash our hands, what do we do? We sing the happy birthday song twice in a row. We, say, we, we, we go through the alphabet, twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's what we tell our kids to do. And then you're done washing your hands. That's not what's going on here. All right? They're not, they're not scrubbing down re ready to do surgery here. What they are doing, they go up to a vat of water. They put their hands in it, and they hold them up in the air. And the water just drips down their arm, off their elbows. Now I'm ceremonially clean. I'm ritually pure to go make this sacrifice. So again, not a hygiene thing. This is a ceremonial thing. Okay, so what began to happen then, about 200 years before Jesus was around, they said, you know what? Everybody should wash their hands before this sacrifice takes place. Not just the priests. Let's say everybody has to wash their hands. And so, again, they would eat these sacrifices, right? So then they began to associate this ceremonial hand washing with eating. And then they took it a step further. You know what? We should tell every Jew everywhere, no matter where they're at or when they're eating, everyone has to wash their hands 
as an act of worship to God before they eat that meal. And so again, let's dip our hands in water and let's hold them up in praise to God. This is what we're going to do for everybody in Israel. And so this began the, the oral tradition or part of the fencing here, not part of the law, part of the fencing that, that uh, started to develop over time. So by the time Jesus is around, it's part of the culture. Everybody knows they were raised that way. You wash your hands before you eat. You wash your hands before you eat. Now, it was actually pretty common to wash your hands before you eat, before you eat anyway back then. It, this, this was not a thing where nobody ever washed their hands, and the Jews were really different that they did wash their hands. It did make them a little different that they did it in a ceremonial way, but people generally washed their hands, not like they do today because they don't, they don't have sinks. They didn't have sinks everywhere like we do. But again, uh, Mark, Mark even takes it a little further, though. He's, he's trying to get us to understand uh, that washing your hands before you eat, when it came to the oral tradition, just the tip of the iceberg. Did you notice what else he said there in uh, verse 4? Yeah, they got rules for the marketplace too. If you go to the marketplace where the Gentiles are, you're defiled by the Gentiles. So you had to come back home and you had to actually wash your hands after going to the marketplace. Not just before you ate, but after the marketplace. I mean, they got rules for cups. They got rules for pots. They got rules for copper vessels. They got rules for dining couches. They got rules for everything. So Mark wants us to see this oral tradition was spiraling out of control. They got all kinds of rules. Now, so when I, when I get into the commentaries and things, uh, they, they, one of the commentaries I got, I got into started to elaborate on how crazy some of these rules had gotten, right? He, he thinks they were spiraling, spiraling out of control in the first century. There's a document called the Mishnah, and it's in the second century, and you can go read. It has a lot, of, uh, a lot of the oral tradition is written down. But here's some of the rules I thought were fascinating I wanted to share with you. Um, to, it was so important that you kept the Sabbath. Here's what the fencing looked like. On the Sabbath day, you couldn't even look in a mirror. It was forbidden to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Because just like this morning when you got up and looked in the mirror, you realized, oh, man, i got to comb my hair. Oh, man, I need to pluck that hair Oh, no, I need just for men in my beard or whatever it is, you know. So they created rules, right, that said you can't even look in the mirror because you'll start working on your appearance, and that's work, and it's the Sabbath. Don't do it. That's how, that's how extreme these rules had gotten. Here's another rule. You couldn't wear your false teeth <laughs> because if they fell out, you'd have to pick, pick them up, and that's work. You're not supposed to pick things up on the Sabbath. Then I, I had to research, and the false teeth started happening around the 7th century B.C., which I thought was fascinating. But anyway, uh, also, you couldn't carry a handkerchief. You could wear it, but you couldn't carry it. So if you wanted a handkerchief with you that day, you had to tie it to your wrist or around your neck, but you couldn't pick it up and carry it to the other room. That was work. So that's a, again, the detail is just incredible, <laughs> but this is one of my favorites. They, so rabbis debated about this one. If you had a wooden leg, <laughs> this is how specific it got. I'm so sorry. I should not have laughed after saying that. If you had a wooden leg and you are asleep in your house on the Sabbath and your house caught on fire, they debated whether or not it was moral to pick up your leg when you were trying to get out of the house. Because carrying something on the Sabbath was breaking the Sabbath. So some, some rabbis would say, no, you've got to leave that wooden leg there. It's going to burn up like a log. You've got to get out of there. And other rabbis are like, oh, come on, you know, you, you can carry his leg out. Matter of fact, he should put it on and run, right? Get out of there. 
But this, this is the kind of debate that would happen in the second century. If you spit on the ground, that was okay. But if you spit on the ground and kind of scuffed it, that was cultivating land. You have broken the Sabbath. That's what was taking place. And you think, did it really get that extreme? Well, we already saw it got that extreme. We've seen it in Mark, right? In this gospel, Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He heals a man with a withered hand, and they criticize him. You can't heal someone on the Sabbath. That's work. They were walking along on the Sabbath, and they see some grain that was intentionally left for travelers and foreigners for snacks. And so when they walked by, they picked the head of grain, and they started chewing on it as a snack. And somebody saw them and said, that's the Sabbath, and, and you're, you're eating, you, you are harvesting grain on the Sabbath. That's work. And so it just kept spiraling and kept spiraling and kept spiraling. These Pharisees were so committed to these man-made commandments and man-made traditions. And the, the irony of it all is it made things like keeping the Sabbath really hard work to do, Right? But you got to think about all these rules and regulations and things that you have. Do I, do I take my wooden leg or not? Like, that's hard work. And so, again, Jesus is, is here eating lunch, just grabbing a quick bite to eat. And he gets hit with this. Why do you and your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? What does Jesus say? I just imagine him taking his napkin. Throwing it down. And here's what he does. Verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Ooh, ooh, man, what you're doing, it's legalism. You think you're worshiping. It's not. It's not worship at all. It's legalism. You guys are hypocrites. You say you're one thing, but you're actually another. Now, the word hypocrite in the Greek is literally play actor. It's, uh, it's, it's the word for play actor. If you were a hypocrite in, in Greek theater, you would have different masks. You would be one actor that had multiple masks so you could play multiple roles in the same play. So you'd put on one mask and you'd play this part. And then later in the play, you'd take that mask off and put this mask back on and you would play a different part. Sometimes you would play two roles and interact with yourself as two different people. You're a hypocrite. You're an actor. And so by Jesus' day, this word hypocrite was used as a slang term to refer to a pretender. Someone who's just acting. Jesus is like, that's like you guys. Man, you remember Isaiah? Isaiah prophesied about you. When Isaiah made a distinction between the commandments of men and the commandments of God and, and how you can be hypocritical and think you're worshiping, and, but you're not at all, he was talking about you. you. You honor God with your lips, but your heart is far you impose these traditions on yourself and you impose them on other. But the reality is that these traditions, they are masking the reality of your unbelief. You're not really a believer at all. You worship in vain. It's incredible, right? The strength 
behind what Jesus is saying to these people. The offensiveness, the strong words. You are fulfilling Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah when he taught about hypocrites. Do we, this, do we do this today? Do we do this in Christianity still today? Do we create rules and add them to what the Bible says to fence in the, the, the morality and the ethics taught in Scripture? Do we create more rules? Do we do that as churches and, and Christians? Yeah, right? That's laughable. We all know what we do. This happens all the time. We see what, what, what is biblical morality, and then we begin to create rules and more rules and more rules, and we behave just like the Pharisees when we do this, when we think we have to protect and fence in the word of God as if it's not enough, i got to add to it. We become hypocrites. Jesus taught this. Jesus taught this. This is, this is Jesus talking to people. So this happens all the time in churches today. I could go on and on and on and on and on with stories. I wrote down a few. Some of the funnier ones, some of the more obvious ones. Now, when it comes to like a dress code, man, we take this, we can take this to an extreme. I knew of one church who sent someone home because the stripes on their plaid shirt were too thick. That's real. That happens around here. Oh, man, we, we allow plaid at our church gathering, but that stripe is too thick. You got to go. <laughs> Can you imagine? I, talk about adding rules to rules. Uh, I witnessed someone telling another person not to come back if they were going to dye their hair a certain color. Uh, this was an older woman talking to a younger man who had dyed his hair, and she thought it was a little too flashy. And said, if you're going to dye your hair that color, don't come back here. Like, ooh, can you imagine if the gender roles were reversed right there? <laughs> Pandemonium, right? They'd be burning that place down if an older man, but n none of you women dye your hair, right? None of you do that, right? <laughs> can you imagine, though, if like an older man was like, yeah, I don't like that color. Don't come back if your hair is that color, right? Ooh, look out. Um, I know churches that have banned certain foods, if not just for a season of time, forever. They prohibited their church congregation from eating particular foods. Of course, we've all seen Footloose. We know how that goes. Dancing, you know, playing cards. Some churches say you can't wear makeup. Some churches say women can't wear pants. On and on and on and on and on and on it goes. We could just, we could just spend all day talking about examples and for you baby movers in here, you're like, oh, that's cute. I, I could tell you way more stories back when I was young, all the extra rules, church imposed on people and things like that. I mean, it, it's true. Just like the Pharisees did it in Jesus' day, we still manage to do this today. And when we do this, there's a, a subtle shift that takes place, right? There's a subtle shift. We're, we're putting more emphasis on our, our performance and less emphasis on who God is and what he says to do and how to live. I, I've mentioned this before in a sermon, like I even know some churches that as part of their church covenant, to be a member at their church, you have to show up with your tax return so that the pastor can determine how much of your income needs to be given to the church for you to be a member there. <laughs> I wouldn't have no friends if I tried something like that, <laughs> right? Like you have to show up with your tax return 
And so it's, it's true. When you, when you become legalistic like this, pastors can gain a certain amount of control over people. And some pastors, they get drunk with that control. And they impose more and more rules and more and more, more and more fencing is put up. And, and it's true. If, if, I, if I just went off on the offering every single Sunday, there's a good chance offering would rise. If I, if I shook you down for money, if I just mentioned it, I, I know some pastors that say at minimum you need to talk about the offering for 15 minutes of your Sunday morning service or you're not doing that justice. And I mean, most of the time I just forget to even mention it. But it's like if I did that, if I did those things, we would probably take in more money and I would probably slightly gain a little bit more. I, I would use that guilt to get you to give a little bit more. And I, I tell you what, it, it, it just... It just leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. Like, our giving might increase, but our worship wouldn't increase, right? See the, see the difference? I think that's what happens with some of these rules and regulations. You know, the, they, they think by doing these things that worship intensifies. But what Jesus is teaching is that when you add to the law of God, you're, you're starting to drain this experience of worship. And if you're, if you're giving as an act of obedience, as, a, as an act of worship, it's, it's clean, it's good. If you're giving because I, I had this full court press of guilt on you, that's dirty money. We don't want that here. God will provide. God is enough. His word is enough. Now, the Pharisees played with uh, rules regarding money too. And Jesus is uh, getting ready to call them out on it. Pick up here at verse 9 through 13. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, uh, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. He's so ready for them. With, he's, he's ready with specific examples. Jesus is saying, let me show you how counterproductive your extra rules are to holy sacred scripture. So he, he makes this point. Everybody knows the fifth commandment. We just read it earlier in our catechism. Honor your father and mother. Now we think of kids every time we mention that fifth commandment. But that commandment was primarily in place to ensure the elderly were taken care of by their kids. And so a lot of people would want to get out of this burdensome responsibility. Oh, my parents are old and feeble and can't take care of themselves anymore. Well, I, I don't want to have to pay their medical expenses either. So... When it came to these extra rules, the Pharisees over the centuries developed a rule called Corbin. That means given to God. It's a popular name, right? People even name their kids Corbin now, given to God. But what this was, this originally was this oral tradition rule so that if, you, if your parents were, their situation was just overly burdensome and you didn't want to drain your savings account to take care of them, you could claim that the, your savings account was Corbin. This is Corbin. It's given to God. And what that meant was this money is reserved for God and God alone. If I die, all of this doesn't go to my family. It goes to the temple as an offering. 
so sorry, Mom. That's, that's God right there. And, and now one little caveat of this, um, if you declared that savings account as Corbin's, you were still allowed to spend it, but you could only spend it on yourself. <laughs> you weren't allowed to spend it on anyone else. You could only spend that money on yourself, and then if you died, you could give it to God. <laughs> it's just crazy, right? It's just crazy. And so Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy here. I mean, can you imagine saying to your parents, oh, yeah, Mom, that looks really bad. Let's try to get that looked at. Uh, I wish I could help you. That's Corbin. Sorry. I can't, can't help you, Mom. So he's ready with specific examples, and you know Jesus could just keep going. But he's trying to point out a distinction here. You are doing something that is not only unnecessary, it's, uh, it's counterproductive. God's word is sufficient. It is good enough. There's enough provisions there. And if you start adding oral traditions and rules to try to fence in the word of God, there's going to be that subtle shift to your performance away from God's provision. And so you, you just think, like, when we think about doing this, and, 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 you know, if we're all being really honest, we probably all are guilty of this to some degree. If we really took the time to examine our own hearts and minds and where do I get legalistic about certain things and not others, um, we could probably discover a lot of things. It's easy to, again, it's easy to, to point the speck out in your brother's eye and talk about all these obvious examples, when, when, but there's a plank in our own eye every single time, right? We can think of times in which we ourselves do this. It's why this teaching is so important. We want to be changed by it. But what, when we read a moment like this in Scripture, I think we're meant to, to meditate upon just how gracious God is. Like he is so gracious to give us his word so that we can discern biblical morality. God's word tells us that it is for us that we can be equipped for every good work. It's so that we can live rightly. Just how gracious it is that God took the time to inspire his word, his written word, and give it to us so that we can discern what is right and what is wrong. And it is enough. It, it's so gracious of him. And it's so gracious of him that he even tells us in his word, don't add to this. We learn this in this teaching, in this moment with Jesus. But we're told explicitly in Revelation, do not add to this, do not take away from this. Okay? So it is enough. It is sufficient. How gracious it is that we don't have to build the fence. We don't have to protect God's rule. But what's, what makes his grace just so overwhelmingly immeasurable is that he sent his son into the world to live up to this law when we try to measure up to, to God's law we fall short when we try to measure up to all the, these legalistic rules that we create as we try to live out our faith we're going to fall short of that too we fall so short all around the purpose of God's law is to show us that we fall short that's why it's there God did not give us his law so that he could say to us good luck if you live up to this law enough or at least better than the guy next to you i'll love you that's not grace he gives us the law to show us that we are imperfect but then he sends his son to live and fulfill that law perfectly on our behalf that's the christian faith we don't need to add we don't need to add rules to the rules so that we are sure we're not going to break any rules the Christian faith is Jesus came, 
and he fulfilled the law. He didn't break any of the law. And he did this on our behalf. So when we put faith in him, we get that righteousness that he lived out. He lived so that we could be righteous. And then he died to pay the price, to pay the penalty for the fact that you and I did not live a righteous life. You and I are not righteous apart from Jesus. That's the gospel. Apart from God, you're not righteous. Apart from Jesus, you will not convince God to love you. He loves us because of his son. He loves us through his son. That's the gospel, and that's why we come back to that communion each and every week. Because we think, oh man, I've just fallen so short this week. Oh man, I'm just such a mess. Oh man. And then we find relief here. We find nourishment. Oh, I'm loved through Christ. How gracious. That gives me strength to pursue that holiness. That gives me strength to to want to live more like Jesus. And so let's go into a time of communion today with that on our hearts and minds. We don't have to be legalistic. We can just thank God for his uh, son and our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this time together to worship and to be corrected by your word. Your, your word is just such a sufficient provision for us, Lord, to know the difference between right and wrong. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have fulfilled the law for us. We thank you, Lord, that you make us righteous. We thank you that you paid the penalty for our sins. Lord, that burden would be too much for us to bear. We have hope here, and we can share that hope, and and we get to live free lives, Lord. Lord, I just pray that we would take this gospel message to heart in such a way that it would change how we live. We don't use this as an excuse to not follow biblical morality. We use this as a reason to live morally according to your word. We want to live like you. Lord, thank you for that grace. Help us to extend that grace uh, to others as we go into this week. In your name, Jesus, we pray.